The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, this is Mike Pasca, host of The Gist. You are listening to a special weekend edition of The Gist because there were just too many good people to talk to, too many insights to glean, and we didn't want to keep them from you for too long. So here now, New York Times columnist Gail Collins and NPR reporter David Folkenflick. So what I've been doing is trying to assemble all the wisest people I could think of on election day. There was Jamel Bowie, and after that, John Dickerson, Evan Osnos, Jacob Weisberg, Mike Murphy. You get you get the gist of uh, this list. It's <laughs> beginning to look like Trump's cabinet. Very few women. Here is here is our Sarah Palin. Oh no, I'm sorry. It's Gail Collins, columnist for the New York Times. Hi, Gail. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. There's a quote in a recent column, and this was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who wrote this as she was near death in 1902. Our movement is belated, and like all things too long postponed, now gets on everybody's nerves. Is Hillary Clinton that quote in microcosm? Um, in some ways, and you know, that's not necessarily a diss on Hillary Clinton. Uh, the, the, the thing that has struck me, and I've written a bunch of books about women's history, and that as opposed to, say, the civil rights movement, black history, which is full of drama, there's like a separate part of the country that's kept separate and enslaved and then fights for against a violent, you know, white resistance for freedom. And then even though, of course, there are still many problems today, they won. We go to see movies about this. It's, mm-hmm. it's the most enthralling part of our history. The history of women's rights and women moving toward power is much more the history of a very long slog. It just everything about it. If you listen to the lists that the the suffrage leaders made of, well, we have now been to 343 referendums and we have been to 97 constitutional conventions and we have done this and that and this and that. It just makes you want to hide under a couch or something. But that's the way they did it because, in part, because the history of what happens with women is the history of what happens between husbands and wives and sons and mothers and so on. It's not two separate groups, and it's complicated in different ways. So it seemed to me always that the very slogging part of Hillary's history was appropriate for the job she had in hand, which was trying to become the first woman president. And um, even though she didn't make it, she moved the story along and... And she got on people's nerves. But then the next time this happens, and when we do get a woman president, they'll be talking about Hillary the way we talk now about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who got on many people's nerves back in her time. So it's a long answer, but that's my thought. Not clashes, no violent rebellions. There was no Nate Turner, Nat Turner, you know? It was people who, women who were living in homes with men. It also doesn't satisfy our definition of drama, right? Not not the great clash and then the victor. I think elections act more along those lines, a clash and then a victor. And we call the victor, even if they're a victor, by tiny little bits, you know, he's the victor, mm-hmm. he's, and the other one is the vanquished, whereas maybe real actual change in politics is that long slog. It's also a true fact that when women 
who fought for women's rights, who fought to move forward, faced up against their enemies. Their enemies never tried to shoot them. They just laughed at them. They made fun of them. The way you get rid of women's issues is you make fun of them. And that's certainly something that Hillary Clinton knows a lot about. When you look at the election results, if we are to believe the exit polls, and by the way, the entrance polls weren't great, so let's take that grain of salt with the exit polls, there seems to be less of a sisterhood than many people thought there would be or should be. Yeah, it's true. Um, There is a gender gap in elections, and the gap is based on women's desire for a safety net. Women tend to vote for Democrats. Women tend more, not by humongous, ungodly amounts, but there's a strong tendency for women to be more likely to vote for Democrats, to vote for things that involve better education, you know, better social security, stuff like that, um, less going to war kind of stuff. But it's never, ever been based on gender. You've, there's never been a time when somebody got a bunch of votes from women because she was a woman. That just doesn't happen ever. You can have the most sympathetic Republican woman in the world, and she still won't get as many women's votes as the Democrats. And it happened for Hillary in the wrong way. I mean, that everybody thought there would be some great, humongous surge because she was a woman and because Donald Trump was the way Donald Trump was. But women have never voted like that. When we first got the right to vote, there was this immediate assumption that we were going to have all these new laws and all this stuff would happen because the women's vote would demand that there be better education and better health care and so on. And it never happened. Um, women voted the way men voted, based right. on wherever they were and whatever their economic position was and so on and so forth. I have a little theory, which is I think America, remember when Hillary Clinton gave that speech about women's rights? I think we believe in women's rights. If you look at what that agenda is, you know, it's de minimis that we would extend towards our female population. So we're on board with that. And yet when it comes to anything past that, a certain portion of our populace is animated, but it doesn't seem to penetrate beyond mostly college-educated or women of color. Um, I'm not sure about that. My, my experience with, and I, I can't remember when this happened, but it was some very conservative guy I knew whose daughter then decided to run. And what I came to realize is that, you know, a liberal is a conservative guy whose daughter is trying to get into college or something. <laughs> yeah. Whenever it comes to your own kid, Whenever it comes to people you know, the presumption is very strong that women should be able to do anything that men can do. It's when it's strangers that you're talking about that things become a little bit more messy. Yeah, maybe the sexism comes into play when we think of people as empty vessels as opposed to people we actually know. In fact, a That's lot a of the point. worst, a lot of our worst qualities do. If you read uh, that George Sanders piece or actually talk to Trump supporters on an individual level, often very perfectly pleasant, if not wonderful people, you Mm -hmm. know, who will extend real empathy towards the illegal immigrant who will be deported under their candidates' policies. I truly do not believe that the average Trump voter was voting on a racist basis. Yeah. Most voters are not sitting there with a list of policy things that that they want to check off one by one. People mostly go, and when it's time for an election, they vote about whether they want change or no change. 
change or know things are going okay, let's stay the way they are right now. And Hillary Clinton was the most non-change candidate in the history of the universe. I mean, she was continuing the, oh, I can't think of anything where she was seriously attempting to say, well, I will do it much differently if I'm elected president. She was a continuity candidate. And people clearly in some parts of the country want to change. And she, I don't see any way that you could argue except for the fact that she had a different gender, that, that she was a change candidate. Having digested this, taken a couple days, have you rethought any of the way you approach elections or coverage or how we in the media should do that? This was a tough one, and I haven't rethought it. It was a very unusual election in that the general predisposition of the the traditional media has always been that you try to be, you know, very objective and hands off when it comes to political campaigns. And it was complicated this time because you had one candidate who was actually not interested in accuracy, not interested in when he said something and then he said something else the next day trying to make it make sense. Um, and so it was very difficult for reporters who were covering him to take a, a, well, here's what he says, because it was different. It's very tough. He's a tougher candidate to take that normal kind of hands-off attitude toward than, than is usual. And I, I don't think it's a thing that'll necessarily happen again. It was just a very, very peculiar election. And I don't know what you do when you have all of these, you know, fact-checking sites that go on and on again, and there's every, you know, three out of every four Trump major statements has to have some kind of a no, that wasn't really true on it. That's a problem for the media. It's not a simple thing to deal with. You are great at pointing out absurdities and uh, poking fun at candidates. Do you, I want you to continue doing that, but I do that too, and I've gotten some blowback uh Either you're not taking him seriously, or this is a more serious moment than that, or you're playing into his hands if you treat him as anything other than, you know, a dire threat to the republic. Uh, so, that, I mean, I guess we're similar in a way, although you do it with a much uh, lighter, more graceful touch. But have you rethought that style? or is, can, you, can you offer me a defense of the style so I can say it to other people? How about that? I'll tell you, when I started, you know, doing columns, which was a long time ago, and I was doing New York City politics at the time, and, you know, New York City politics, is not, and it, then it was even worse. And every day I was writing a column about the you know, horrible, evil thing that was happening somewhere and some terrible thing. And after a while, I thought, God, this is depressing. Even for me, I want people to actually read about politics and what's going on. And if I make them feel like they should throw themselves out the window every time I write, then it's just not going to do it. So maybe I can find a way to get people interested in this stuff by making it funny. For a while, I was in Connecticut covering the Connecticut State Legislature. And you try to get people interested in the Connecticut State Legislature. It is <laughs> no easy task. So... um I had a news service, and my partner and I it was Trish Hall, who was the op-ed editor at the Times for a long time, too. Um, she and I would sit there, and we'd make poems up, and we would you know, do quizzes, and, you know, we would everything we could think of to try to make, you know, the Connecticut State Legislature, you know, something people would want to read about. And humor was the thing that worked best. So I, it seems to me it's a totally 
legitimate and honorable way to try to get people interested in this stuff as long as you're attempting to convey some information. So you put out a 10-point plan for adjusting to President-elect Trump and so many of these, you know, perhaps I was talking about pewter linings on my show. I can't even think of silver (laughs) linings. But then there were always the thing that uh, would trip it up like, hey, maybe in foreign affairs, he'll surround himself with the right advisors. Then again, there's Newt Gingrich. Hey, maybe he'll be able to drain the swamp and go with something new. Then again, there's Rudy Giuliani. (laughs) So there's not much unalloyed optimism to be had, I guess. Yeah, I can't argue that, you know, it makes any sense to run around saying, this is all going to be great. It's no problem. I mean, obviously, you're looking out there and there's going to, but it it does... This is still our country, and it does no good to just, you know, beat your head against the wall, or you just, you know, kind of kind of move along and see how it goes, and we'll deal with it. Yeah, I'm just psyched for all the good new infrastructure. I mean, it'll have the Trump name on Boy, it. Boy, but... are we going to get infrastructure? Oh, such I am infrastructure! I'm really confident. See, that's a good thing. Who yeah. could be against infrastructure? Right, and his top his top aide, Chris Christie, he was great with that arc tunnel from New Jersey. <laughs> oh my God! But then again, Chris Christie. <laughs> all right, Gail Collins. Thanks for doing what you do. It's a pleasure. Great to talk with you. We live in a media world, so it is hard after something shocking or strange or to many of us disturbing happens not to, to some extent, blame the media. And at least some portion of the media is usually wrong about something, but maybe most of the media was wrong in the way they covered Donald Trump. Joining me now is David Folkenflik. He covers the media for NPR. Hello, David. Hello, Mike. Right after the primaries, we had a discussion, which really was a debate on the gist. And I took the position that the media was not to quote unquote blame for his success in the primaries. They pointed the cameras and opened up their microphones and notepads. He filled it up and then voters had a choice to make and they chose him. You pointed to the disproportionate amount of coverage he had and you cited many instances in which he wasn't challenged on statements. That was the primary. Does your calculation change at all in the general when, you know, I guess you could argue, how do you not give a major party nominee as much room to talk uh, on your outlets as he wants or she wants? I think the dynamic changed just before around the time of the uh, the con- national par- party conventions in July. Uh, I think that uh, major news organizations, in some ways led by the Washington Post, really started to give uh, much tougher scrutiny to Donald Trump, to his the implications of his statements, to uh, his record in business, to at times his personal behavior, uh, and to, to a series of things that sought to shed light on him. I thought there was much more enterprise, much more investigative vigor brought. You know, my problem in the primaries was twofold, one of which was that I thought that a lot of the interviews were fawning or unchallenging. There were exceptions. Uh, But I think in in some ways, most egregiously, he was given disproportionate amount of of time just at his rallies speaking long, long length uh, Mm -hmm. uh, without interruption uh, and that the ratings spiked because you didn't know what he was going to say next. And as we've been able to show, the the cable networks in particular made a killing off doing that. I had cable 
Global News hosts tell me they didn't know if or when their show would begin. Uh, it's well past their regular appointed hour because Trump kept going on and on and on and the executives were scared to turn away. Well, I was able to report a couple weeks ago, you know, CNN and all the different cable networks were able to register election cycle bumps in presidential years. It's a good year for them. It always is. This year, CNN booked an extra $100 million based on the fascination with an obsession about Donald Trump, shared by media executives, and it turns out a significant amount of the viewing public. So that's a financial inducement to do what I described in the primary season. In the general election, there there both was more enterprise reporting, particularly by, I would say, non-television outlets, but also uh, Trump pulled back from being the freewheeling guy who would show up almost without an appointment uh, in all these television studios or call in to various anchors who would happily take him even if he was on a cell phone, even if it was last minute during the primary season. And so there's a combination of Trump pulling back and in the general election, hey, this guy is one of two people who's going to get elected. Let's do our jobs. But, you know, gosh, Donald Trump, with the exception of a 72-hour period, led in the Republican polls from July of 2015 through uh, the convention a year later. And I think the Republican voters le- deserve to know about uh, about him in full context uh, before he was sort of presented as one of two people who might win, at which point I think the public you know, decides, well, he's at least a, a reasonable option or a possible option because he's one of the two people we're, we're presented with. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think that people had access to whatever information they wanted, and maybe they even got that information and knew all those things, and they didn't care about those things. So in other words, it's values. The facts that the media valued as being important were discordant with the facts or feelings that the voters, a majority of the voters or a majority of the electoral vote, uh, thought was important. Well, and let's add a couple codicils to that. Uh, Let's acknowledge that the press, more than in any election I can think of uh, in the modern era, became not just a player but an antagonist in this race. Donald Trump in running against the establishment did not make the media an incidental member of the establishment. He put it front and center. Even though he would have been extinguished without the flame of the Kleeglites, he needed the glare and the attention both at his rallies and the endless interviews. He really you know, went after the press, uh, threatening to sue The New York Times, threatening to go after Jeff Bezos and Amazon for what was published in The Washington Post, which Bezos owns personally, threatening to uh, sue NBC, uh, the, the parent company of NBC News, because the, that embarrassing Access Hollywood tape uh, surfaced with him talking about sexually assaulting a woman, a, char- a you know, characterization that he said he never did. There's also that... As a result, you know, voters are conditioned not necessarily who are sympathetic to him are conditioned not to believe in what the press says. And the press, you know, I think one failing of the press, even through much of the general election, is that it responded to the uh, stimuli that he put out there. I mean, you have to cover the rates that's playing out in front of you. But simply responding to Trump's latest tweet, even though they are were at times staggering and unprecedented communications from a presidential candidate in recent history you know, distracted you from the ability of saying, well, here's how some of his statements and policies seem to have shifted on immigration, or here's what they seem to be doing in Pennsylvania. We heard on election night as as the inclination seemed to be sweeping against uh, Hillary Clinton. You'd hear, well, you know, the folks at the Michigan State Democratic Party and the county party leaders here in Michigan have been saying for months, hey, we need help and we need backup. And Hillary Clinton has only really sent that high level backup in recent weeks. Well, that would have been something to know. That would have been something mm-hmm. to take note of, them them saying, we think we may actually be in a little trouble up here in Michigan, which was seen as part of the deep bank of reserve of electoral votes that Hillary Clinton had already you know, essentially deposited and didn't need to worry about. 
Yeah. I think there are a couple other failings. I think that I tried to get at the get out the vote story, but that's a very opaque thing and you can't really cover the effect of it until it's happened. And I think the conventional wisdom, what you can do is count the number of offices you had and Clinton was trouncing Trump, but I think that was counting the wrong thing. And I think that there was a couple good reports like from Bloomberg and other outlets about the RNC's efforts. And it seems to me that that at least made up for or did a good enough job to counterbalance the number of field offices that Clinton had with her get out the vote effort. I think that's right. And I think also one of the mistakes that we made is that I think a lot of major news organizations would take the polls and then go out and do interviews and craft those interviews to represent what the polls told you. I think it was Ezra Klein who over the summer at one point rather dismissively said, you know, the plural of interview or anecdote is not data. You know, big data would sort of tell us all. Well, big data is reliant, as it turns out, on a lot of assumptions built in. And there are margins of error. And even in those margins of error, those polls, you know, will tell you in the really fine print that that'll only come true about 95% of the time, right? Beyond all that, the polls and the surveys of polls from places like Huffington Post and New York Times is the upshot, uh, 538, and the kinds of analyses that, 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 that the good people over at Vox do, and uh, gentlemen at Princeton who does similar stuff, you know, these things were wildly wrong. You know, I grant you that if you look at the upshot, that you know, in the day of uh, the election. It said uh, Hillary Clinton has 85 percent chance of winning. Uh, that means, of course, she had a 15 percent chance of losing. And uh, that happens about as often as a uh, NFL kicker. And uh, you would know the stats even better than I do. But this that's a, a 37 yard, yard yeah. 37 yard field goal, I think they said, which is, you know, she, it doesn't happen much. It, it can happen uh, on, on a given day. Well, it seemed like the ball shanked pretty far away from the goalposts on this one. And uh, <laughs> and I think that, you know, we're really going to have to figure out if our data, you know, is really big data is really going to save us in the way that it did so much for baseball. You know, does it do so much for politics? Well, it may not. I think we have to be very careful. I think we're going to need I mean, I know people don't like to hear this in this day and age, but I think we're going to need serious academics to go out and do studies of tens of thousands of voters to figure out what happened here, because I don't have great confidence at this point in uh, the way in which the media has polled things. I've got to say, and I'm sorry to have to say this, I I, I feel that VoteCaster did not not make a, a gorgeous debut for you guys at Slate. <laughs> you, mean, you, mean, you mean our little experiment where we uh, predicted of the seven swing states we were monitoring, monitoring that Clinton would win? Uh, I think it had her leading in all seven when in fact she only wound up winning two of them. That one? That vodecaster? Well, the word that I was looking for rhymes with fiasco, but I can't quite remember what it is. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like, look, this was, this was one where the media Wait, takes it. Was Tabasco? It, it was... <laughs> <laughs> This is one where the media takes it on the chin. Those who are in some ways Trump's most adamant supporters get to do a victory dance and point and say, I told you so. You guys were in the bag for Hillary. And the answer is, you know, I think there were a lot of assumptions built in, not based on ideology, but based on the way voters had behaved in the past that didn't quite figure out how humans behaved in real time when confronted with two very real human beings who each had almost 100 percent name recognition. We all know who these two people are. And that means that voters essentially can absorb or discount new information about them at their own discretion. There's one other argument I want you to weigh in on. And uh, 
It's summarized in an Atlantic headline, the article's by Selena Zito, and she wrote about taking Trump seriously, not literally. And her point is that the media took Trump literally, you know, every one of his words were fact-checked or sometimes mocked, but not seriously, whereas his supporters took Trump seriously, but not literally. We, as the media, can maybe self-flagellate because we didn't take him seriously. But what are you going to do if the voters and the supporters don't take him literally? Is there some other paradigm for covering a candidate? Well, let's go back to the original sin for the media. And again, I've never said that the media created this guy. I think he's a self-creation. And I think the media abetted and enabled it because it served their own purposes and because he was such an extraordinarily magnetic story. But the original sin was that they didn't take him seriously in the primary. So even if they took him literally, they also treated him as great sport and entertainment. And there was that element to the story. And I don't think that shouldn't have been an element, but it's a it's a grace note. It's a, you know, it's a riff. It's not the point of the melody and the song. I think that's really the problem. I've actually quoted that Zito uh, line in a column I did and, and at an appearance recently in Philadelphia this week and some other places because I think it, it's such a compelling way of, of distilling what occurred there. And that's part of the disconnect. They said, look, she, she was saying a conservative a political columnist who used to work for the conservative paper in Pittsburgh now, now, now gone. She essentially was saying as she drove around and talked to hundreds of Trump supporters that they just wanted somebody who would do more on illegal immigration, people who are here without legal status. They didn't expect them to throw 11 million people out. They didn't really expect them to build a wall. They wanted somebody who would do more to do that. They want somebody to do more to prevent terrorist acts from happening here, particularly from people who had traveled abroad and come back. They didn't really expect them to prevent Muslims from coming to this country. So they, they were giving him the credit of his notions. And he was able to get away with that because he's never had to take a vote in a Senate. He's never had to issue an edict as a governor. He's never had to be responsible for, you know, a death penalty decision. He's never been in a position of governmental power at all. And as a result, he can say, that's me playing a character named Donald Trump who's giving you some sense of who I am, but not the actual uh, facts. How are we in the media? Some of his words were not supposed to report. Some of his words were supposed to report with the same grain of salt that his his supporters hear it with? Are we supposed to, when he says, I want to deport hundreds of thousands of people, like the proper reporting and say, yeah, he says this, but what he's really getting at, or isn't the proper reporting to say, here's what this would mean and here's how horrible that is. I, you know, I don't understand what it means, what it would mean to take him, uh, any, I can understand doing both and I can understand doing neither, but I don't understand his uh, marching orders from a newsroom. Hey, go out there and take him seriously, but not literally. I think you can take him both literally and seriously. I think that that's that's actually the press's role. I think that in order to take him literally, you have to be, you know, very conscious and attuned to the idea that's over the course of a campaign, as with any candidate, some of the rhetoric may be modified and some of the actual positions behind that rhetoric may be evolving, in part because he's not a guy who came to the table with a ton of extremely fixed positions. But I think it's okay to take him literally as long as you allow for the idea that in politicians, if you shift, it's not simply a flip-flop to nail somebody for, but it's a, a shift that you have to take account of and present. Uh, and sometimes you heard that on immigration, but not much else. And I think there were some missed opportunities there. You know, during uh, uh, the third debate, there was some actually pretty substantive policy being debated and discussed as it went along. And it seemed as though he had a bit better handle of what his positions actually were. And there was a bit of an ability to analyze that stuff. And then as uh, uh, the, the media scholar Kathleen Hall Jameson pointed out recently, uh, 
he was asked whether or not he would concede uh, if he were to lose the election to Hillary Clinton. And he said, well, I'd have to think about it or we'll see. I'll keep you hanging. And that was the only thing anybody pointed out or really paid attention to. And while I was among those who thought, my God, I've never seen that before. That is newsworthy. It does mean that we completely obscure, and I don't think this is unintentional by Trump, uh, attention to the substance behind and the implications behind what he has to say. He, he was able to f- get the media to quick twitch react to one outrage after another, things that would damage other candidates but served his purpose uh, almost intuitively uh, because it prevented serious consideration of what he was up to. And so I don't think that we should cleave literally from seriously. I think that seri- taking somebody seriously does mean absorbing the idea that somebody will be 100 percent consistent with the implications of that precise statement, but that that's what that person is saying and this is what that represents. I think the serious part was the part that the media had real trouble with. David Folkenflik covers media for NPR. Thank you, David. Thanks, buddy. This has been a special edition of Slate's Gist. More tomorrow.